0: Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live and almost every week from Café Terence in Paris' Troisième Arrondissement. This program is being sponsored by a generous contribution from the Billy Cohn Collection. David Thompson, welcome to Paris once again, here to talk about your latest book, A Light in the Dark, A History of Movie Directors. Uh, David is a film critic, film historian, author of nearly 30 books, including biographies of David O. Selznick and Orson Welles, uh, Rosebud, and uh, most well-known for the Biographical Dictionary of Film, now into its sixth edition. A compendium, as the title suggests, of over 1,200 of the most important people and some of the less, less important people in the history of cinema. And I'm firmly a believer that in 100 years from now, if we've screwed up the earth, which we are seem to be on our way to doing, uh, if anyone needs to know anything about movies, this is the book they will buy. David, uh, always a pleasure to have you with me.
1: I'm very happy to be with you, too.
0: And uh, let's kind of talk a little bit about this book. Uh, yeah. 1,200 uh, entries in the Biographical Dictionary, about 12 in this one, uh, yeah. film directors. Uh, How did you go about making that decision? Because I know there's a wide variety of of talent in here and a lot of very notable exceptions.
1: Well, um, I knew from the outset that a book of this length, and the publisher and I agreed, a a book of around 75,000 words, uh, that many people would be omitted or referred to briefly in passing. But what I wanted to do was make a selection of movie directors going back to the very beginning and try to use those life histories to trace the evolution in the power and the respect that we pay to film directors. And um, what that meant really was choosing a number of people who had worked over a fairly long period, uh, maybe three decades, maybe more in some cases, and um, just showing the changes that had occurred because I believed, and I think this is really something that prompted the book very much, that whereas when movies began... The public did not really know who the directors were, let alone what they did. We, we passed into a period, the period we call the auteur theory, where directors became very important. They became artists-like figures. Uh, they became the subject of film in academia. People taught seminars on directors. They wrote books on directors. They got tenure by studying directors, And the director became a cultural hero, so that, you know, a Hitchcock or a Hawks or a Billy Wilder, those were names known to the general public. And um, now I think something very interesting has happened where we are sort of going back to the idea of the director as a functionary who might even be anonymous, because... All these long-form television series we've been watching for the last 20 years, and which in many cases, I think, have been better than the movies that have been offered in theatres, we don't know who directed them. Uh, We don't sort of bother to read the credits. Uh, We just believe that those series have appeared magically, and... There are directors who've done a lot of work in these TV series who are, I think, enormously talented, respectable people, but we've given up on making heroes of them. So I wanted to track that way in which the, the sort of sheer professionalism of the director evolved into the artistic personality and now is going back towards professionalism. So I picked a number of people, knowing that in the final chapters of the book, I would be dealing with a lot of different directors. So while there are about 12 who are highlighted, there are probably closer to 30 directors who are really talked about at length.
0: Well, you you, uh, mentioned uh, the current series, things like uh, uh, Breaking Bad, uh, Ozark, which you love very much, uh, Berlin, Babylon, Berlin. This may be a subject in a few years of another conversation to describe that process, showrunners yeah. and directors and writers in yeah. long form. But to get back to the beginning of this book, you talk about Fritz Lang, uh, who had two careers, or in a sense, uh, uh, to me, uh, one great career and a half career. He's starting out with UFA in Germany during a Weimar, Talk about the films that he made there, and then let's talk about how his works seemed to have wavered as he got to America.
1: Well, it's easy for younger people not to realize what an immense figure Lang was, not just in Germany, but internationally. I mean, he was really a masterpiece maker, and we're talking about films that are largely silent but his films about Doctor uh Woman in the Moon, Metropolis, of course, which was one of the great works of the nineteen twenties on screen, and then M, which is a sound film, but but is but is of enormous importance as a landmark in the treatment of murderers on on screen, uh, and then lang leaves germany uh he 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 understands that the germany of hitler is not going to be congenial to him so he ends his career and in doing that he ends his marriage to thea von harbu who had been his screenwriter on all of those silent films in germany and he comes to america And he comes with this great reputation, and Hollywood at first wants to welcome him and give him big projects, but it never quite works out. He will work in America for 20 years, uh, makes a lot of films, a lot of different studios. He never really finds a home at one particular studio, and There are some interesting films in the American period, some good films even, like The Big Heat and Fury. His first film is pretty good. But a lot of the films I don't think are recognizable as the work of the man who had been such an extraordinary figure in the 1920s. And it's the difference culturally of going from a situation where in Germany in the 20s, the director was regarded as a very, very important person to the Hollywood of the late 30s, 40s, early 50s, where the opposite was true, where the director was somebody, the system, believed it could push around.
0: Well, you, you bring up von Harbaugh, which makes me think also of Lenny Riefenstahl and perhaps the... The importance of women in filmmaking in Germany at that time. Uh, we can talk about Lenny at, at, at detail, but Thea is not as well known, although she's uh, right fully fully described by our friend Pat McGilligan in the, in the nature of the beast, which to yeah. me is a, certainly a, a much better work than uh, uh, than Lang's uh, second period. Talk about, a little bit more about Thea and that relationship and how they worked and how essential she was to his success in Germany.
1: Well, Thea von Habu is now a sort of rejected figure in film history because Lang left her. She stayed in Germany. She became a Nazi, and she did nothing really of great value after Lang had gone, but she did write and collaborate closely with him on all the films made during their marriage. She was instrumental in the idea for M, uh, She was clearly a talented person. And, and, you know, it's a case in the book where I think a collaborator needs to be uh, built up and a case made for the collaborator as being very important. Because I think when he came to America, Lang never found a screenwriter that he could work with in the way he had worked with Thea von Harbu. And, you know, we can can throw her out of history because she was, in quotes, a bad person. We don't really know she was even a bad person, but I think she was a pretty good screenwriter, and I think that Lang, for all his amazing visual imagination, needed help on screenplays, and he never quite found that person when he was in America.
0: Yeah, let's just briefly talk about M because when I I interviewed Pat when the book came out uh, and and we put 250 people into the Lark Theater to watch a brand new print of M uh, and I was just blown away that we attracted that much of an audience for a German language film with English subtitles. So just kind of briefly talk about M for those who may not have seen it.
1: Well, M is the story about uh, a child killer, a serial killer. It was, I think it was certainly inspired by a number of serial killers that had been operating in Germany in the late 20s and early 30s. It's a film made almost entirely on studio sets, so it's, it's a very claustrophobic, airless world. And the killer is pursued equally by the police but by the forces of the underworld too because the killer is disturbing the regular order of a criminal society. And the killer is played famously by Peter Laurie, an actor Lang had seen a couple of years before M was made and he had asked Laurie not to make another film so that M would be like his screen debut. It wasn't actually the very first film he'd made, but the impact of the film was amazing. And Laurie, who was a very, very ambitious and talented actor on the German stage, made such a impact as this killer that he was doomed ever afterwards to playing killers or madmen or comic figures of horror. And the film that made Peter Laurie, therefore, also crushed him, if you know what I mean. It crushed sure. his career. And and it's, as you say, you know, the film is 90 years old now. And it's as if it was made yesterday. It's an extraordinary film and... and uh, a very frightening film, a very disturbing film, because it really digs into uh, why someone will start to kill strangers. Uh, you know, that's an so issue in the world that we're living in today. It's, that's uh, what I'm. That's what yeah, I'm thinking. It's a very, really very. Years. It's a very prescient film, uh, and if anyone has not seen it, I encourage them to watch it.
0: Well, uh, the, one of the next people that you talk about is Howard Hawks, who we both love for many, many reasons. Uh, but it also, it uh, given the world we're living in today, uh, Woody Allen, Me Too, uh, yeah. lots of aspersions being cast around without necessarily having any, any proof, uh, Hawks was a, a man of his time, shall we say, the 30s and the 40s, and the relationship between men and women in, in Hollywood uh, was what it had been up until about three years ago. So Absolutely. talk about him as a filmmaker and, and what he – because I think we had talked about the fact that it's often difficult to watch a film today uh, through the lens of contemporary times. I and mean, we can certainly do it and separate the talent from the uh, – uh, uh, and the art from the reality. But the reality of 2021 would look at a lot of his films differently.
1: Well, Hawkes was in life a womanizer, and in his work – He was absolutely typical of several generations of filmmakers, and I don't think it's died away. Uh, Men who get into making films because they want to meet beautiful women, they want to exploit them on screen, and they probably want to get involved with them in life. He was um, famous for his ability to discover new actresses. And, And, you know, that goes from Lauren McCall say in To Have and Have Not and The Big Sleep to Angie Dickinson in Rio Bravo. And the the tenor of his films, I think, invariably is a kind of brilliant stylized flirtation with men and women talking together. These films do not belittle women at all. Uh, Some of his films have great parts for actresses, and you know, we all remember Dorothy Malone in the bookstore in *The Big Sleep*, a film that made her. And and Hawks made a lot of actresses. And I use that term uh, in a double meaning sense. Sure. Um He did not behave well, but his bad behavior was absolutely taken for granted in that time. That was the way the film business operated. Women were exploited, and women let that happen because they had no power and because they wanted to be a movie star. Now, great films, I think, great entertainments, let's just say, like to have and have not, the film where Bacall is introduced to the world and falls in love with Bogart, um, it would be very, very difficult to get that film made today because it has attitudes to women that are simply uh, things we can't deal with on the screen. You and I could argue endlessly about whether that is a positive or a negative thing. I think it's a very positive thing in that it leads to a proper respect for women. But it does take away a lot of the charm and romance that we associate with a whole range of films, made in the 30s of the 1940s particularly. So Hawks is a sort of problematic figure. I still, I I love the films. They are superbly made. But I have to recognize that there is a kind of shadow within them. And um, I would not be amazed if in the next few years it became harder to see some of the Hawks' classics, because of their attitudes to uh, I, women. I hope
0: not, because I, you know, I, the Hawksian woman. If you go back and look at *The Big Sleep*, the dialogue when are discussing horse racing over a drink in a
1: restaurant—absolutely, uh, she yeah. more
0: than holds her own. This is not oh, some yeah. weak no, no. woman. Oh
1: I mean, I, um, I tried to say, talking about Dorothy Malone, that these roles for women are brilliant. Their dialogue is sparkling and very witty, and funny they're photographed beautifully um there's a real independence to the hawksian woman i mean think of Catherine hepburn in bringing up a baby for instance right. uh she dominates which ironically the
0: film. Did, was not a success when it first came out that's
1: right that's right one of his few relative failures uh, it's a tricky issue and and um i can only tell you that political correctness has invaded American filmmaking, particularly, and for good reason, because there's a great deal that went on in Hollywood over which we should be ashamed. But uh, be careful, because the urge to be correct can make the product very much more limited than it was once upon a time.
0: When a I lot of Walt Disney.
1: No, a lot of people, women included have always enjoyed seeing beautiful women in romantic situations saying smart, funny things. We shouldn't forget that.
0: Because well, if you look, at me, to get off Hawks for a moment, uh, Only Angels Have Wings, with Cary Grant on the plantation in the high in the Andes, yeah. and uh, Gene Arthur, who has a, a lot of bite to her and a lot of sass. That's and right. And even the very, very young and beautiful uh, Rita Hayworth, who becomes yes. a Hawksian woman, by the end of the film. Totally. Her experience totally. uh, brings her out to be a much yeah. stronger and, and desirable in, in many, many other ways apart from her raw beauty uh, yeah. than she might have been at the beginning of the film.
1: Well, I said in 1975 when the first edition of The Dictionary came out that if I was on a desert island and I could only have the works of one director, it would be Howard Hawks. And for all my uh, advanced... Aging, uh, wariness about him. I would still want his films.
0: <laughs> I, I, I I totally agree. I'm not going to succumb to to what's Good. going on. Good. And then you talk about a, another subject of our our friend Pat McGilligan, who must get proper credit for the remarkable work he does in his in his cinematic Absolutely. biographies. Absolutely. There By is Alfred a chapter Hitchcock. in
1: the book dedicated to. to yeah, well, Pat. it should
0: be the whole book should be yeah. dedicated to Pat. Uh, but. <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock, another person who started out, ironically, uh, in, in Germany doing work on silent films, yep. where I guess is where he got uh, the understanding of the visuals, which was so much a part of his preparation yep. for films. And then Kate, you know, did a several uh, suite, somewhat I think call the Thirty Nine Steps suite. But I would love to be chained to Madeleine Carroll overnight. Uh, I don't care what they say to me. Uh, or the Thirty Nine Steps, which I reminded me a lot of Lubitsch. There was some humor in the beginning of that film. I said, oh, absolutely. I was hanging out with Lubitsch <laughs> before he became the master of the macabre. Yes. So talk about uh, about the arc of his work. And I think someone in his case, his work got better when he got to America.
1: That's very interesting. And I agree with you. I mean, he was a he was a very accomplished, successful director in England, and he attracted the attention of people in America. And he went to America just as the war was breaking out. And he got some criticism for that. But I think what he wanted to do was to work in the studio system. He, I, th- I think he understood the studio system so much better than Fritz Lang had done. He loved the the greater facilities, the, the improved sound quality in films, the way you could track and use a crane with a camera more freely than you could in England. And I think he wanted to work with people who wrote screenplays that fitted into the conventions of the entertainment movie. And, of course, he wanted to make films with movie stars because his whole vision, I think, was based upon the idea of these iconic archetypal figures. And that's why we get people like James Stewart and Cary Grant being so important in the films he was making in the 40s and the 1950s. So he always remained English-sounding. He lived the life of a certain kind of English gentleman in America. I don't think he really understood America as a country very well, but as a factory system which he could work in and exploit, he loved it. And, of course, that climaxes in Psycho, uh, not just his most successful film commercially, but far and away his most influential film. It's a film that introduced horror away from the horror genre, but put it down in a kind of modern, conventional, American dramatic setup.
0: No, you know, and to get back to Hitchcock, uh, Bernard Herrmann, uh, the great composer who also scored Orson Welles's first film, and, and some other films that I've... Uh, that are not by well-known directors, but uh, but left such a mark. The sound, the music, and I know you're very much attuned to that—not to, to be used a pun—but the the really the power of music. I'm thinking of anything he has done. Certainly Jerry Goldsmith uh, with Chinatown, that soaring trumpet solo. Talk yeah. about Herman. Talk about the or uh, Miklos Rosa, uh the the influence of these musical uh, geniuses to be able to uh, just give you a a fragment of a, of a sound and it signals everything that's going to happen.
1: Well, you know, there was an age when you went to the movies and you were in a large theater that was probably full. Uh, I can remember sitting as a child in South London cinemas that held 2000 people and Packed. There wasn't a spare seat. Well, not everybody was smoking. I wasn't smoking then. But um, a lot of people were smoking. It was a very special atmosphere, being with a mass of strangers in the dark, being frightened or being amused and excited by the film, all in a sort of communal spirit, and absolutely vital to that was what I would call the quality of movie music. It was not like music that you'd hear in a concert hall. It was not like... Yeah, it was not like pop music on the radio. It was melodramatic music. It was atmospheric music. And, you know, I think that people of that generation, you play a few phrases of the music from, say laura or gone with the wind and people recognize it you can be in the next door room while a film is playing on television and you hear the music and you know what film it is and you know the mood because people like herman and rosia many others were so good at underlining the dramatic mood and the music helped us read and understand those films and enter into them in a fantasy way. And I don't think movie music, although it's very good nowadays, I don't think it operates in quite the same way. And it has to do with the fact that for two or three decades, everybody went to the movies. And so the cinema was always packed and everybody loved and believed in those stories and in the movie stars. And it's it's a thing that it's very difficult for young people today to imagine, I think, because you can't get back to it. And, you know, who knows? We're not even sure that our world will go back to theatrical movies. I think something has happened during COVID where people have found a new norm of watching on their sofa uh, with a screen that is probably as brilliant and bright and detailed as any movie screen. So I'm not sure what's going to happen to the history of the movies in that way. I think more and more they may be made to be seen in our living room.
0: Well, I think so. And unfortunately it also underscores a uh, part of what's also occurred through COVID is the lack of human contact. We're yep. here in another period of a semi lockdown that uh, our Curfew has been extended to seven o'clock, I know. Uh, but but uh, restaurants were not open. And we're hopeful that perhaps sometime in May, and this is largely a function of getting the delivery of the vaccine, yeah. uh, that that will begin to open up. But a lot of stores are closed. It's a nightmare for for retail.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh and Hopefully, with the good weather, we'll get a bit of a break and it will do a better job of uh, distributing the vaccine. But uh, people don't have that ability. I know, and you and I, growing up. Uh, we'd go, in my case, I go to see a Woody Allen movie. I always felt, you know, if the PLO wanted to take out the Jewish contributions to Israel, they just go to the 10 major cities in America on Friday night, the opening night of a Woody Allen film, and take out, you know, 35% of the revenue. I never, well, you, I never shared this with Yasser Arafat, but it certainly <laughs> struck me.
1: Well, you uh, know, when I was a kid, and this w- w- was something that went on well into my teens. I lived in suburban South London. There were three movie theatres that I could walk to easily. They changed their programs every week. I was in the habit of going to those theatres to see a film. I didn't even always know what the film was. I went to the movies rather than to a particular movie. It was the atmosphere of that communal storytelling and the the play upon fantasy, that's what turned me on. That's what excited me. That's what seemed to be so much better than reality. (laughs) And, um, uh, you know, if you didn't have that experience, then I think it's harder to watch a film from that era and, and understand what it meant. I saw Psycho, for instance, the day it opened in London in 1960, In a huge theatre, it was the midday screening. And actually, that screening was nearly empty. I was nearly alone. And I have to tell you that it was all the more scary because I was alone. And I was, by then, 19, I think. And I remember saying to myself, after the shower killing... (laughs) Under my breath, "Oh, please don't do that again," <laughs> knowing very well that Hitchcock would do it again.
0: <laughs> oh, no, absolutely, that was a, a just a remarkable film. Yeah. Uh, you talk also about Stephen Frears, and I, I think you, you talk about his professionalism. Just to yeah. let people know uh, he he made. Uh, the great film that we both love, The Grifters. Yes, uh, great film. He, but he did two little films, uh, uh, Gumshoe and, and Saigon, A Year of the Cat. Talk about yeah. those two films because uh, you've compared him somewhat to uh, to William Wyler in the sense yeah. that he approached, or, or perhaps might, maybe I referred to him as Michael Curtis. Uh, there isn't a clear definitive style to his work, except right. it's always highly professional, Uh, He gets wonderful performances out of actors or actresses you may or may not know and continue to do that throughout his entire career.
1: Well, that's what prompted me to put him in the book, Um, because there's a man who has been working now for probably five decades, most of five decades. He began in television, uh, as a lot of people did in those days, and he works steadily. He's nearly 80 now. And I'm sure he's got something on the go. And as you say, you look at these films, there are a lot of films you really like, like My Beautiful Laundrette, The Queen, uh, The Grifters. And they work, all of them, because they're so accomplished, they're so professional. But you don't come away thinking, oh, it's a Stephen Frears film. You come away thinking, oh, there's a film that has just been done Absolutely professionally. And Frears himself, in person, is very self-effacing. He doesn't build himself up. He doesn't assert himself, if you know what I mean, as a big figure in the way that Hitchcock did. Frears is kind of shy. And I don't know how far the the shyness is a bit of an act of self-protection. But I love the idea of directors who work like that, who work regularly. I believe in directors making a lot of films because they learn their craft, they get better. And they do it as if they were, let us say, a doctor, a surgeon doing an operation. And, you know, when you have an operation, big operation, let's say, you don't wake up knowing who did it, you may see the surgeon and you may be grateful uh, and touch for a moment, but what happened to you was an operation. And we hope it worked and we hope it did well. And there are filmmakers, and as you said, Michael Catties, William Wyler, uh, Frears, and the people who make our television long series who approach the project in that kind of way. They want a good script. They want to cast it well, and as you pointed out, Frears is is a brilliant finder of actors and a great caster. He was really instrumental in starting Daniel Day-Lewis in My Beautiful Laundrette, and he just takes immense care, and when he's finished, he doesn't promote himself in a big way. He moves on to another project, and I like that approach.
0: Is that a British Um, thing, or having worked in the British... uh... Uh, TV industry?
1: I I think there have been people in America who were like that. They were self-effacing. Fritz is very English. He he came to America and tried to sort of make a career here. Uh, And The Grifters is a great film, I think. But he didn't sort of sustain himself as a Hollywood figure. And I suspect he was not as comfortable in Hollywood as he is in London. He's a Londoner now, not born a Londoner, but he's very much a Londoner now. And I think that community, and there's a very special creative community that involves theater and film and radio too, uh, because a lot of British actors go from one medium to the other. I think he's more comfortable in that format.
0: You talk a little bit about uh, Saigon, the Year of the Cat, because it's an it's a TV movie uh, yeah. with Frederick Forrest and Judy Dench. And all right, get back to casting. Uh, who would imagine them as a pair of lovers? Well,
1: there you are. Uh, it's it's a script by David Hare. Uh, you know, very good quality writing, and it's about a woman uh, who is a bank manager in Saigon just as the Vietnam War is coming to an end, and she meets and has an affair with a rather mysterious American who is in some form of the Secret Service, Judy Dench, Frederick Forrest. Not the most obvious romantic casting, I think, but the film works wonderfully, and, and it played on television originally in Britain, and I talk about it in the book as an example of a movie that even Freer's fans probably haven't seen, don't know it. Uh, I, had but not, if,
0: I had not seen it, frankly, until you told me and about
1: it. So. It's pretty, it's pretty good, isn't it? I
0: liked <laughs> it very much, very much. I mean, you know, one can be ordinary looking and, and still fall in love and still totally. be romantic, <clears>
1: yeah, <throat> totally, which
0: most people are.
1: Almost everyone is ordinary looking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: but no, you, you mentioned uh, somewhat in passing uh, Robert Altman, and, and and personally, I'm not as crazy. Uh, I, I can't watch MASH today that I did when it first came out, but yeah. I can watch McCabe and The Long Goodbye over yeah. and over and over. Or fabulous,
1: kind of, fabulous films, genres. I think. Yeah. Talk about those two films and about Altman. Well, Altman had a period, not a long period, I think, where his way with the camera and soundtrack, and he had, he loved overlapping soundtracks. And people complained that you couldn't always hear what characters were saying in an Altman film. And he would reply, well, you can't always hear what people are saying in life because conversation can get confusing and it can be a muddle. And he had a camera style that rather back that up because he would have a very full frame invariably working in cinemascope and the camera would track and pan or zoom from one thing to another so that you never felt absolutely confident where you were looking or meant to be looking because so much was going on and as you say mccabe and mrs miller the long goodbye nashville too although I don't think Nashville is as good as it was once thought to be. But films that he made in the in the 70s, the early 70s, really, mm-hmm. um, I think they're fabulous pictures. And, and uh, you know, he had great collaboration. He had Vilma Sigmund as a cameraman. And also, uh, I think McCabe may be the best thing Warren Beatty ever did. I think that the long goodbye may be the best thing Elliot Gould ever did.
0: I was phenomenal uh, in that film.
1: Absolutely great, yeah. It's and also very
0: cool that he, he, in the zeitgeist, that he casts uh, Jim Bowton as as uh, as Terry, as the
1: uh, yeah the guy that a, you know, a, who, who as was, the villain. Yeah, yeah, who yeah. had written a
0: book, a book called Ball Four, which was uh, yeah. baseball players despise them. And the beautiful Nina Van Pallant, who had been a, a there you are, of Clifford I, I mean, Irving. Yeah, uh, it, it you know. It, Perfectly tapped into the zeitgeist, and they were very well cast for the roles, I
1: think. He was a great caster, and, you know, that that's an interesting aspect of film that doesn't get talked about. There are casting directors, people who who will advise a director on people who are available and might be good in their film in certain parts. These are very, very important people in, in filmmaking. Yeah,
0: you know, Lynn Stallmaster, who just died. There
1: you are, there you are, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, we, we, we have to talk about Woody Allen, who you mentioned in, in, in yeah. passing. But, yeah. uh, and our friend Pat McGilligan is working on a biography of, of Woody as well. Yeah. And who knows where this is going to end, uh, whether it's true or it's not true. But it, it brings up an interesting subject. Do we measure the man by uh, his personal life, in this case, whether it's true or not, or the quality of the art that he gave us? Uh, and particularly as critics, you know, what is our, what is our role there? Uh, is it a role that we 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 choose, or are we being forced by the public to make those cho- or not by the public? Yeah, by the public, I guess, to make those choices.
1: Well, he's a very complicated case. First thing I would say about him, and a thing I approve of, and something I mentioned just briefly, um, he's made a ton of films, and I love that attitude. You know, every year he'll make a film. Some years he even made two, and. I think he learned and developed and improved. Now, when you make that many films, some are not going to be as good as others. And I do think when he got to a certain age, Woody Allen began to decline as the maker of Woody Allen films. They get looser. They get lazier, I think. And they get more implausible. He needed
0: to find an alter ego for himself, someone to be a young Woody Allen
1: yeah but you know there is a period, and let's say it goes from Annie Hall through well, mm-hmm. even up to Blue Jasmine or match play, where a lot of the films in that period, and we're talking about maybe ten pictures are very, very good, and they stand the test of time and I think what's most interesting is that they are films that talk about emotion but don't always really deliver it. You, you don't always feel that Woody is having the feelings that he says he's having. And I think there has always been a rather smothered, emotionally smothered, secretive side to him. And I've loved his films, but I've not really felt I liked him. Now, I liked the films without feeling I needed to like him because I agree with you that that uh, it's perfectly possible for very unpleasant people to make really considerable art, and that's been going on for centuries now, and we just have to be grown up about that. And I think that condemning the films because of something a person has done or may have done is, is a very dangerous policy and with Woody I find myself in this situation I was shocked by him going off with Sun Yi I thought that that was a very dangerous reckless thing he felt he needed to do it okay but I can see that that action had a very damaging effect on the extended family that he'd become a part of but I do not feel that anything has been proved in terms of his relationship with Dylan. There has just been in America, I don't know whether you've seen it, a four-part documentary from HBO no, I've called not seen it. Alan vs. Farrow, which goes into uh, the whole story in immense detail. is far too long, but still very interesting. And I came away from it feeling, as I did when I went into it, that... I didn't want to be part of that family one bit. I think it was a crazy setup, but I did not believe that Woody had done something for which he could have gone to prison. Yeah, I just don't believe it, and and I'm afraid that he's reached a situation where I don't think he's able to make another film now. Uh, He made a few in Europe. I'm not sure that will go on, but he is 85, and, and you know, it's quite possible uh, for an 85-year-old to say, well, I wouldn't mind taking a rest, uh, and maybe he's into his time of rest. I don't know. Well,
0: I'll be curious to see what Pat has to, I won't say dig up, because he does research. He doesn't
1: dig. Absolutely. He
0: has taken this. And there was a two-hour documentary that's available on, on the Internet, uh, basically uh, – I wouldn't say proving, but stating that uh, nothing has ever been proven, which is a fact. That's that a fact. Psy- the child yes. psychologists at Yale uh, are almost of the opinion that uh, Mia at some point had been, this, this child could no longer discern reality and yeah. and, and fantasy, but neither here nor well, there. Uh, yeah. But if you look at Manhattan, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Annie Hall, these yeah. are films we can watch over and over. To me, that legacy is, yeah. is very, very firm.
1: And they do reveal a man very interested in guilt and deceit and, and things like that. And I think I do think that's where the work fits with our sense of the man.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's go on on a happy note. Uh, yes. We both love uh, Lubitsch. Uh, I mean, I'm not quite as enamored of the shop around the corner as you are, but I love that film.
1: Yeah. So let's yeah. talk
0: about the, the extraordinary Lubitsch, uh, Billy Wilder's God. Uh, yep. and, and that lovely little film that I know you watch at least once a year. And even I do, even though I don't have quite the, uh, the food <laughs> that you have. Yeah, but at least once yeah. a year I
1: have to watch it. Well, you know, I, I, I mean, why do I watch it all the time? I can think of a lot of reasons. I love the creation of its MGM, uh, Culver City, Budapest. Uh, it's all fake, and yet it's wonderful. It's an enchanting world. Beautiful sets, wonderful gallery of supporting players. I love the intricacy of the story uh, about two people who are in love but think they dislike each other. Uh, you know, that's an unusual way to approach a love story, but has a lot of truth in terms of the lives we lead. And I love the chemistry between Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan and... and. Uh, I, uh, the anguish they feel towards the end of the film when they're not sure whether their romance is going to work out, and then the bliss when they suddenly feel it is going to come to fruition. It just it makes me happy. And, it's enchanting, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think films that make you happy have a very important place.
0: I, I, I would agree, and I... I Parenthetically, I love Felix Bressert, who was one of the three crazy commissars in the Natchka Yes. Uh, there, there are no Felix Bresserts in this world.
1: No, I know. And Frank Morgan. Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, all the supporting players in that film are just perfect.
0: Well, David, I, I notice at the end of the book, you indicate that your next effort, that you're a third of the way through, will be on actors. Uh, That's right. The same principle of this book. So yeah, I look forward yeah. to that. And well, as I, we've talked about talked about music, and I people should know that not only are—the reason I call you a film historian and not a film critic is you know more about American jazz and, and literature uh, than most people who are writing about those subjects, and it informs much of your work, and I, I can hear it when I read you, and I certainly hear it when we talk, and uh, at some point, we can hopefully we'll be able to get together here or there and do something— or, Around music, as we did once before at the Castro. At the Theater. Castro, that was you know, a great about, evening. You know, great Bernard evening. yeah. Bernard Herman and Jerry yeah. Goldsmith. Or I yeah. remember the first time I listened to uh, the soundtrack to the English Patient without watching the film. Yeah. Gabriel Yared. I was there. I saw the entire film before oh, my I eyes. Know.
1: I know. Just, it's a, just a it's remember. an amazing skill that some composers have to to, to 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 bring the whole movie back to you in a couple of phrases of music.
0: Well, David I Thompson, always great. You're always welcome to be here. And another hour has just flew, flown by, speaking well, English correctly. Well, that's very
1: kind of you, Terry, <laughs> and, and we go back a long way, and it's always been a happy time working uh, it's, with it's you.
0: Been wonderful. It's been a learning experience for me as well as a friendship. The book, great. A Light in the Dark, A History of Movie Directors, uh, available this week. So, David, take good care and hope to see you here at some
1: point. I would love to see you in person.
0: Great. Thank you.
1: Thank you for joining us, and please
0: share your comments and suggestions at Terence at paris-expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at paris-expat.com. And visit paris-expat.com to sign up for my five weekly newsletters about the City of Light. Until next time, à bientôt à Paris.